Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to the release of our newest policy paper, Bolstering Arctic Domain Awareness to Deter Air and Missile Threats to the Homeland. In an era of great power competition, the U.S. homeland is no longer a sanctuary immune from conventional adversary attack. Both Russia and China have developed a wide array of weapons capable of striking the U.S. homeland. The Arctic is an attractive pathway for launching these attacks. But defending the homeland isn't just another mission set. It's the Department of Defense's primary obligation. And that's why the Mitchell Institute set out to study this topic further. To discuss our report and its recommendations, we have with us today the author, Dr. Caitlin Lee. And we're also very fortunate to be joined by General Glenn Van Hurt, Commander of U.S. Northern Command and Commander of NORAD. In these two roles, General Van Hurt oversees the day-to-day -day defense of the North American continent and also advocates for the next generation capabilities required to defend the United States um, as well as our partners and friends uh, in Canada. So Dr. Lee, let's begin with an overview of your paper. Over to you. Paul, well, thanks so much for that, General Deptula. Um, I'm really honored to be here today, and I'm humbled to be the opening act for General Van Herc. Um, he has been such a vocal advocate for U.S. Northern Command at this really critical time when the Arctic is emerging as a real center of gravity for strategic competition. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing more from both of you uh, following my brief remarks on this new Mitchell Institute paper, which is focused on the topic of emerging air and cruise missile threats in the Arctic. Um, so uh, I would ask uh, if we could just put up the slides or I can, oh, there we go. Next slide, please. Okay, so I wanna start out today by highlighting two emerging trends that I think are really kind of converging to create a very urgent problem for defense of the US homeland. The first is Russia and China's pursuit of new capabilities and postures in the Arctic that could really allow them to more easily employ cruise missiles and other weapons against the United States territory, anything, you name it, from critical infrastructure to power projection nodes. And the second trend is this overall decline in the US ability to detect and respond to air and cruise missile threats in the Arctic. You know, this was this was kind of laid bare or brought to the public's attention this past winter. I'm sure General Van Herc will discuss this when China floated a spy balloon right down into the continental United States via the northern approaches. So I think taken together, what these trends suggest is that the Arctic is becoming a highly attractive ground, staging ground for cruise missile attacks. In a crisis, Moscow or increasingly it's possible Beijing might seek to launch conventional cruise missiles at the US to coerce US leaders while still keeping the violence just low enough below that threshold to avoid provoking a nuclear response. That's kind of where cruise missiles come into play. And so this is a really tough problem and there are no easy answers. Cruise missiles in particular are hard to detect and they're hard to shoot down. But in talking to NORTHCOM and NORAD leaders for this study, what really became clear is that just because it's hard doesn't mean we can take a totally reactive stance to this problem. We need to improve Arctic surveillance or domain awareness now so that decision makers have the information they need to dissuade these cruise missile attacks from happening, dissuade actors from launching these cruise missile attacks in the first place. Next slide, please. So to drill down a little bit here, I think there's three main reasons why this work focuses specifically on the US ability to detect cruise missile threats in the Arctic. Number one is the Arctic has always been a staging ground for 
for air and missile threats, really dating back to the earliest days of the Cold War. And that's simply because it represents the shortest route between the major capitals in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, whether that's Washington to Beijing or Washington to Moscow. Second, Russia and increasingly China are really establishing a military presence in the Arctic. Russia has chosen to revive a number of its Arctic military bases, including several that are pretty near US territory. Um, the third thing is that relates to cruise missiles in particular, which can be launched from a variety of different approaches in the Arctic. Um, ground launches from Russian military bases are just one possibility, but cruise missiles can also be launched from Russian bombers and subs, and, and these can transit the Arctic with pretty low risk of detection. And by the way, China is also developing long range aviation and, and quiet submarines that can also uh, launch cruise missiles as well. So as China and Russia explore these options for attacking the US from Arctic approaches, I think cruise missiles are, are already obviously standing out to them as an attractive option. And this is chief, chiefly for a couple different reasons. One, they tend to be lower cost than ballistic missiles. And second, they're definitely more difficult to detect. So while ballistic missiles tend to fly on a very predictable trajectory, cruise missiles are not that way at all. They're highly maneuverable. Um, their heat signatures are much lower than ballistic missiles. That makes them harder to detect. They fly low to the ground. And so this makes them very attractive assets for our adversaries who want to launch surprise attacks or um, get their missiles through our defenses. So, you know, this cruise missile threat's been evolving for a while, uh, but even as this threat's grown and, and sort of the undetected nature of threats in the Arctic has become more apparent, the U.S. has nevertheless really steadily been losing its capability uh, to defend against air and cruise missile threats or missile threats of any kind, really, from the Arctic approaches. And this is interesting because during the Cold War, detection of long-range aviation of Soviet bombers was a huge deal. And we built up a whole chain of radars in the Arctic to detect those bombers, known as the dew line. But after the Cold War, the U.S. got very distracted and really lost its focus on the Arctic. And today, as a result, we really don't have much capability up there to detect cruise missile threats. You know, instead, what we have is this limited ballistic missile defense system that's primarily geared toward North Korea and some extremely limited capability in terms and to intercept other adversary air and missile threats with a very small number of fighters and an even more limited air defense capability that's really only centered around the national capital region. So today, much of our, this is just all to say that today, much of our missile defense approach sort of implicitly relies on deterrence. This idea that if the adversary did launch an attack on the US, we would respond. That is the thing that will stop them. And that's fine, except that, of course, we prefer not to have the adversary launch missile attacks in the first place. Um, so our legacy approach to missile defense is sort of to just uh, deal with things right of launch. And as, cruise, as these cruise missiles diversify and grow in number, I think DOD is really kind of coming around to this idea that that's, that's not good enough, that we need more of a comprehensive approach that looks at left at launch. And so the idea here is to look at a broader concept of missile defeat, which goes from very early indications and warning all the way through the intercept of a missile. But really the focus is on getting left of launch, kind of having those early indications and warning. And so there's two real main components to this. One is domain awareness, this idea that we just really need to have robust surveillance capabilities day to day to know what's going on in the Arctic on a daily basis and then track those threats, including cruise missile threats once they emerge. And then the other is information dominance. So once you're able to synthesize all this, once you have all this information about what's going on in a given region and what the threats are, you need to be able to synthesize it together and get it to decision makers very quickly. 
And the idea is if you can do these two things, you empower decision makers to act earlier and dissuade bad actors from bad behavior. So I just mentioned that two really important elements of getting left of launch are domain awareness and information dominance. The trouble is we have some pretty big gaps as General Van Herc has talked about in the Arctic in terms of our domain awareness. Um, today, really what we chiefly rely on is the North warning system, which is this chain of ground-based radars. that's very old and frankly, aviation and cruise missiles can maneuver around these radars pretty easily. We also have ISR aircraft, but none of them are assigned to NORTHCOM and they are not routinely allocated to NORTHCOM. So the assets simply aren't really available to get at that domain awareness. And then we have some legacy space architecture, but that's not so useful because it's primarily geared towards tracking and detecting and tracking ballistic missiles, not cruise missiles. And so what all this adds up to is a pretty significant gap in domain awareness. Also issues with gaining information dominance. So once we have this, once we sort of know what's going on in the environment, we need to be able to get the information to decision makers quickly. And there's a couple of different problems here. First is that the cruise missile threats are difficult to distinguish from other types of aircrafts. And even if you can see them, the time to communicate that information to senior decision makers is far too long. And another problem is because it's hard to identify these threats and distinguish them, the U.S. often wastes resources. We'll often scramble fighters to go up and look at cruise missile threats and what we think might be a cruise missile threat or an adversary aircraft, only to find out it's a small general aviation aircraft that's wandered into the wrong place. So there's a lot on this chart here, but the bottom line is we have these serious gaps in domain awareness and there's really not gonna be any one silver bullet solution for this. What's really needed is a more comprehensive approach that's really focused on the left side of this chart in green, which is the left of launch capabilities. We want to stop adversaries from considering cruise missile attacks in the first place. So the goal is really to improve our ability to detect adversary changes in behavior very early and then communicate those changes to senior leaders so they have more options to dissuade that bad behavior. So if you look at the bottom of this chart, there's a blue triangle. And basically the idea is, is that if you get left of launch, you can give decision makers more time and more options in, that are less escalatory than actually having to go intercept a cruise missile, whether these options are diplomacy, economic pressure, even moving forces just to signal that we know the adversary is thinking about a cruise missile attack. Of course, we're not gonna be able to field all these capabilities at one time. We just don't have the resources and frankly, the time to do this effectively. But there are a few short-term solutions that we can pursue to get the most bang for the buck and improve our domain awareness in the Arctic. So if we think about detection requirements left of launch, they broadly fall into three categories. The first is regional threat awareness. And this is what I was talking about with day-to-day -day indications and warning. Um, our adversaries moving their forces around in the Arctic um, or making other logistic preparations. We wanna know about that. A couple of, real, I think, uh, interesting short-term solutions here can be continuing to partner with commercial satellite companies for both sensing and communications. Right now, we don't have a lot of good satellite sensing and communications capability in the Arctic and the commercial sector is moving fast in this direction. Another existing option for day-to-day -day Arctic domain awareness is certainly to do more with our MQ-9 Reapers. The Air National Guard has a force of about 30 Reapers, largely used for training. Those could easily be moved up to the Arctic to do day-to-day -day domain awareness. Now, 
once you've done your domain day-to-day sort of regional threat awareness, the next step is to actually, if you get some indications and warning, you want to be able to track suspected strike platforms and then continue to maintain custody of them. And there's there's lots of different sort of combinations of sensors that would be good for this. I want to just call out a couple um, over the horizon radar, which can see out to 4,000 nautical miles, is a very important asset, especially up in the Arctic, to augment some of the other sensing capabilities that we, we have up there, primarily the North Morning System. But you could also imagine that working in concert with MQ-9 Reapers and other aircraft to the extent they're available to help us neck down and identify those cruise missile threats. And so really thinking about different combinations of sensors that could be operated in the Arctic together to get a fuller picture is going to be really important. So moving forward, I think there's sort of three main recommendations I want to highlight for you all that we came out of from this work. Um, first is because it, it would be helpful to sort of experiment with these sensors to get some short-term solutions into the area right away, it might be worth con DOD considering a joint capability technology demonstration. And what this would do is pull together sensors in different um, concepts of operation to test out how they work together and how much they can improve domain awareness in the Arctic. Related to this, it, it could be beneficial to create a separate North American Defense Initiative, a fund that's really dedicated for looking at Arctic domain awareness. And I think this has two purposes. One, it can be used to fund any promising technologies that emerge from the joint concept technology demonstration. And two, it sends a signal that Homeland Defense today really is about the Arctic region. This is really a huge threat. And I think making the connection between the need for detection in the Arctic and Homeland Defense of North America is really important. Um, the other thing to really highlight here is for the Air Force in terms of making, exploiting existing inventory to do more with domain awareness in the Arctic. And here's where I think the Reapers and the Guard can make a real difference. Um, and also, you know, just continuing to push on the acceleration of other key assets that could really help improve, accelerating the acquisition of key assets that could really improve domain awareness. And these include things like the E7 Wedgetail, which the Air Force is buying, but could buy sooner and in more numbers to improve its ability to do search and track of air threats. Um, I think these kinds of things could be very important for also bolstering domain awareness. So in closing, uh, bolstering domain awareness in the Arctic is really going to be critical for um, getting after this air and cruise missile threat problem. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing more from General Van Herc and General Deptula and appreciate your time today. Well, thanks very much for that um, overview, uh, Caitlin. Now, General Van Herc, um, what I'd like to do now is offer you the opportunity to share your command perspectives uh, before we dive into questions. So you've got the stick. Well, thanks, General Deptula. <clears throat> I always enjoy talking with you in the uh, Mitchell Institute. Uh, Dr. Lee's obviously done her homework. Um, a lot of the, the themes that I've been saying are, are embedded in the work that she's done. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to be on here with her. We do need more voices educating, as she's doing, about the challenges we face with defending our homeland uh, and the challenges that we face uh, in the Arctic region as well. I concur totally on the importance of the Arctic. 52% of the NORTHCOM AOR is in the Arctic, from the North Pole, um, you know, into the Indo-PACOM area, UCOM area. Uh, it's a vast expanse. And it's increasing in its importance each and every day with environmental change, commercial travel, uh, access to resources, and all of those create opportunities and they create vulnerabilities. It's the shortest path to our homeland from potential adversaries such as the PRC 
or Russia. Uh, and now there's more access and opportunity there, which will create the potential for friction, strategic competition. So the importance of the Arctic can't be uh, overstated, candidly. Uh, to be you know, influencing there, uh, we have uh, Russia, China, others trying to change international norms, rules, and laws through their activities in the Arctic. Uh, and to ensure that uh, we have a stable and prosperous Arctic, we need to be there. We need to be present. We need persistence. Uh, what I say oftentimes is uh, to be on the, the to use the football analogy, to, to play the game, you have to be on the field. And sometimes I say we're in the locker room developing a game plan. I would point out that uh, NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act of 21, directed me to do a study on what capabilities are needed in the Arctic uh, by DOD. Uh, I am the DOD designated Arctic advocate for capabilities. And I completed that study and turned it in. Uh, in May of last year, in 22, probably not in time uh, to, to really fully inform uh, last year's POM, but I look forward to seeing what uh, comes out in the budget uh, here in the near future. All of the services uh, have Arctic strategies. The department uh, is redoing their 2019 Arctic strategy. I look forward to seeing them fund those Arctic strategies uh, in accordance with the, what I would say is the White House's number one uh, 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 tool, if you will, uh, what they said was national security in their Arctic strategy is crucial. And that means uh, DOD has to be part of that uh, discussion. I look forward to moving that ball down the field. Uh, I do think future uh, integrated air and missile defense uh, solutions look different than they do today, and they must be uh, more broad, global in nature. Uh, we've typically approached these from a regional perspective with boundaries on a map that were artificial in nature. I think Caitlin uh, did a great job talking about the capabilities over the horizon radar. That will go across multiple combatant commandery, uh, command boundaries, also within allies and partners boundaries. And I think that's crucial. The future of uh, air and missile defense doesn't start here in the homeland. It doesn't start with kinetic in-game defeat. It starts forward with domain awareness, with allies and partners sharing of data and information with my fellow combatant commanders being able to generate those effects further away from our homeland so that we're not having to generate them here in the homeland. But ultimately, there are those things we must defend in our homeland kinetically or through hardening and resiliency. And uh, I'm happy to report to you that I got policy last year on uh, some of those items for defense critical infrastructure. And now we're working closely with the department uh, to, to make sure that we're in a good place to defend those key things and the departments working closely with the interagency, the National Security Council, as we further flesh out uh, what are those second and third order items that feed that critical infrastructure, the lifelines to it, whether those be within energy or transportation. And uh, so that will help me tremendously as we develop uh, game plans going forward. I do want to take just a minute uh, to clarify the roles for NORAD and NORTHCOM. There was some confusion recently with the release of the uh, Unified uh, Command Plan and uh, that spoke about missile defense transferring to uh, uh, SPACECOM. Portions of uh, advocacy, uh, the Global Sensor Manager, uh, those things did transfer from STRATCOM to SPACECOM, but uh, NORAD still has the threat warning mission. NORAD, NORAD still has attack assessment. And NORTHCOM still has ballistic missile defense. Uh, NORAD has the cruise missile defense uh, mission. So none of that transferred over. I just want to make sure that uh, we're uh, uh, fully aligned there and get that uh, on the table. So while the Arctic region is critical, Caitlin, what I would say is uh, the threat environment is much broader uh, 
uh, than just the Arctic. Uh, certainly, uh, the Arctic has to play into the defense of the homeland. Uh, but as you pointed out, uh, I would say threats are all domain. And I look from uh, undersea uh, to space and cyberspace and everything in between, and from all axes. Uh, right now, they're developing capabilities, potential adversaries to approach such as fractional orbital bombardments that may approach from the south or long-range ballistic missiles that don't have to come over the pole. They can actually come from south or west. And so we have to look at the uh, the broader context as well of uh, potential threats to our homeland. I would uh, point out that uh, despite the challenges that we've seen uh, Russia and Ukraine face with their logistics and their command and control, they still remain a, a very a strategic threat to our homeland with uh, conventional capabilities and certainly uh, nuclear capabilities. Uh, the Russians, uh, along with the uh, the PRC, the, the primary pacing threat in the department strategy, have actually been uh, just as aggressive as they ever have been, especially Russia here recently in the maritime domain, uh, undersea, uh, as well as surface vessels and in the air domain. So they haven't uh, slacked up and they've been uh, conducting uh, what I won't, I won't call it interoperable uh, op opportunities or activities with the, uh, the Chinese, but I will say they've been uh, working in concert with each other here recently. And we're gonna see more of that uh, as they move forward, uh, I suspect. Uh, we did see yesterday public messaging out of Russia with regards to their submarines, their advanced submarine capabilities, uh, as they continue to field submarines that potentially hold our homeland at risk. So while we focus on cruise missiles uh, and talk about that, I would tell you deterring the action in the first place, as Caitlin talked about, preventing that submarine from getting in a position to launch a cruise missile or the airplane from even taking off by giving deterrence options uh, and if required, defeat options before their threats to the homeland is absolutely where we're focused uh, in our strategy. And so the strategic principles that I put in place, number one, uh, when I, I took command uh, nearly three years ago, it will be three years in August, was domain awareness that Caitlin talked about. You can't uh, deter and you can't defeat if you can't uh, detect. The department's done uh, some great work there with funding of uh, four over-the-horizon radar capabilities and working with Canada uh, they funded two. I'd like to see one more if we could make that happen. Uh, and we're on track to field those later uh, this decade. So that'll give us some significant domain awareness, specifically in the Arctic, but it also will give us some domain awareness uh, south facing and east and west facing. I think that's crucial. A key point that uh, Caitlin brought out, uh, I can never give enough time to our senior leaders, something that I can never have enough of. And the only way you can create more time is getting further left. And that's the processing and the analysis of data, that domain awareness that we have today. You know, oftentimes we'll ha have a satellite image of some threat, whether it be a DPRK missile or some other activity, but it doesn't get analyzed in a timely manner to take any action. If we can get further left to give deterrence options or defeat options before it is ever uh, airborne, I think that's crucial. And day-to-day -day demonstrating the capability to operate within an adversary's observe, orient, decide, and act loop or OODA loop is crucial to integrated deterrence. To me, this is a gray matter battle. Uh, I want uh, any potential adversary 
uh, to, to believe every day that they could never be successful in achieving their objectives by bringing us to our knees or delaying or disrupting our force flow or destroying the will. And that's what our campaign plans focused on each and every day, demonstrating that through overt activities or passing information through covert and clandestine means to ensure we shape the behavior, not of just PRC in Russia, but of individual uh, decision makers. It's about shifting the mindset. As I mentioned, we did get uh, defense critical infrastructure policy. Uh, I conducted a, uh, a commander's estimate, essentially a plan of how we would uh, defend that uh, critical infrastructure. And I look forward to hearing back from the department. What, what I would tell you is that uh, in the near term, uh, I broke the commander's estimate up into essentially the current FIDEP and then kind of a further out. Uh, working on the current FIDEP, we'll work on uh, what I just told you, resiliency, uh, hardening, uh, deception, denial, along with defending the key critical infrastructure. But I think the future of homeland defense looks vastly different than it does today. That domain awareness will be important, but that domain awareness needs to feed a globally integrated uh, air and missile defense capability where you can do real-time collaboration. Think of JADC2. Uh, and you can do that with allies and partners so they can generate effects forward uh, for me. But it also involves getting away from competition with my fellow combat commanders for fighters or AWACS or tankers and getting unmanned autonomous platforms with domain awareness capabilities with effectors that are both kinetic and non-kinetic that we can think of as airborne, but also uh, maritime that we can utilize in the Arctic or we could utilize off the uh, eastern seaboard, the western seaboard or around the globe wherever we need to be. Uh, to do that, I think there's uh, uh, some homework that needs to be done. I, I uh, concur with the recommendations that uh, Dr. Lee made. I think there's some great recommendations there uh, as we look to going forward. There will be some policy work that needs to be done. Uh, flying unmanned autonomous platforms uh, are likely a policy challenge that we'll have to work through. Sharing of data and information are policy challenges as well, uh, and cultural challenges. Uh, but the bottom line is, uh, I, I'm not worried about where the data and information comes from. It's just sharing it so that we can have uh, processing and uh, dissemination for decisions quicker, which equals deterrence uh, in the long run or integrated deterrence. And so uh, I'll pause there. General Deptula, pass it back to you. I look forward to your questions and discussion. Well, that's great, gentlemen. Herka, really appreciate your comments. So let's dive into some of the issues a little bit uh, in a little bit more depth. Um, modernization of homeland defense was not a top priority after the Cold War, uh, but as uh, we saw in Caitlin's presentation and your remarks, we're seeing it become more so today. So could you elaborate on the threats that we're facing from a homeland security perspective, uh, just a little bit more uh, detail? You bet. So as I mentioned, uh, threats across all domains, undersea to on-orbit and cyberspace uh, in between. Um, Caitlin covered it well. Um, airborne threats, the threats we face that are different today than the Cold War when the current systems were developed, uh, are capable of standing off with low radar cross-section cruise missiles, firing those from over their homeland, their territory, uh, and evading uh, the platforms or the capabilities that we have, such as the North Warning System today. Uh, they can stand off and do that from uh, Russian territory uh, and PRC can forward deploy uh, and do the same kinds of things and uh, expect them to be about eight to 10 years behind Russia for kinetic capabilities. They can do it from those incredibly uh, quiet 
uh, submarines as well that uh, present challenge. And now we have submarines from uh, the Russians in both the Atlantic uh, and the Pacific. So they're in their Northern fleet and their Pacific fleet. And that's decision space as they uh, will become persistent proximate threats and they can uh, park those off the coast uh, every single minute of every day of the year uh, in the future. And that's decision space that uh, is taken away from our nation's senior leaders. And we haven't haven't experienced that uh, in the past. Uh, she mentioned uh, land uh, capabilities uh, right across from Alaska where some of our most strategic uh, assets are, whether they be missile defense radars, uh, missile defense capabilities such as our ground-based interceptors, the 105th gen uh, fighters up there, the port of Valdez and oil, uh, and utilize ground-based capabilities, mobile ground-based capabilities that are hard to target with cruise missiles and hypersonic cruise missiles uh, as well. Uh, you know, I, I worry as well about uh, disguising on commercial vessels the potential to house a containerized uh, cruise missiles or other threats. That's something that we have to keep an eye on uh, going forward uh, as well. So that's just the the you know air and maritime domain. Uh, candidly, General Deptula, I'm most concerned about the cyber domain and the threats that uh, are in our homeland today, where the vast majority of the critical infrastructure required to project power from the homeland uh, resides in the private sector. And the vulnerabilities there uh, oftentimes are a domain awareness gap. Uh, I work closely with Jen Easterly and obviously General Nakasone. SIS is doing a great job of bringing in those partners, uh, but I think there's still work to be done uh, there. Uh, the UAS, the small UAS threat, is uh, going to be a significant challenge as we continue to go forward. We haven't seen that uh, emerge as a, as a uh, kinetic threat here in the homeland. It's certainly a threat from an ISR perspective, surveillance especially. It's a threat across our border. Uh, we see vast amounts of uh, surveillance uh, by cartels to uh, enable the migration, uh, and we see drugs being uh, uh, chauffeured back and forth across the border. Uh, so those, those are just a few things when I take a look. I would tell you the DPRK continues to uh, advance in their capacity and capability with their ballistic missiles, and certainly they're in the market uh, to move forward with uh, maneuvering vehicles, uh, including hypersonics. Uh, and so we'll continue to see those challenges. Um, well, thanks for that. A bit of a follow-up. Uh, besides gaining new capabilities, how are some of our potential adversaries posturing, training, and operating, quite frankly, to attack our homeland? Well, First, I want the uh, the people listening to understand is I don't see immediate intent. Intent. Uh, what I do see is the development of capability, and that uh, development of capability uh, is is there to deter us from uh, getting into a regional crisis or conflict uh, and projecting power from our homeland. Uh, you know, Desert Storm truly was shock and awe. Uh, and they watched how we built up uh, combat power and projected combat power, and they're developing those capabilities, as Caitlin pointed out, to hold us at risk with the intent to do it below the nuclear threshold. To me, that erodes strategic stability when you have limited opportunity on how you're going to respond to that. And we just need to understand uh, that uh, an attack on our homeland is uh, incredibly uh, destabilizing to the global um, environment, if you will. So how are they postured? Uh, well, I mentioned it a little bit. We're certainly seeing um, Russia activities, uh, undersea activity off of both coasts uh, and across the Pacific. Uh, I won't go into detail, but we've seen it here recently for long periods of time. 
uh, and we've seen them conduct those activities in uh, cooperation uh, with the PRC as well. Uh, in the air domain, we, we're seeing uh, international norms, rules be, be challenged. We're seeing more aggressive uh, activities out of the PRC with our uh, our, our fighters and uh, our ISR platforms uh, in the Pacific as well. Uh, those are just a, a couple of examples. There are absolutely, and I like to say every day, we're under attack in the cyber domain and the information space. Uh, their preparation of the battle space uh, through the use of the cyber domain uh, for critical infrastructure, they're attempting to do that each and every day. Uh, they are using the information space, such as social media and other platforms, to destabilize uh, the environment to capitalize on uh, any dissent that we may have within our own society. They perpetuate that through disinformation and misinformation campaigns. And we're only going to see that grow with the uh, the use of uh, capabilities, uh, as you've heard recently, like TikTok, which will learn. They will use uh, AI capabilities uh, to shape the information space for what potential adversaries may want and fan the flames of internal discord. That'll give you a couple of uh, things that uh, I'm seeing on a daily basis. No, thanks for that. Um, it, now, during the Cold War, the United States relied on a network of ground-based radars and missile warning satellites to provide early warning for any incoming Soviet bombers or ICBMs. Uh, could you talk a bit about the importance of modernizing our capabilities to to better meet the, the new threats that we're seeing? Sure. Uh, first, uh, I, I want to go back and, you know, Caitlin mentioned that I might talk about the uh, the PRC high altitude balloon. What what we found out after the fact is we, we do have the capability to detect and track. At the time, uh, we had filtered out that data through filtering systems. Our radars uh, see that, but they only see what speeds we tell them to look for and what altitudes. And uh, so we've uh, adapted based on intel and, and the threat that we see to ensure that we have better domain awareness. But that domain awareness only goes out to the curvature of the earth with a typical radar. And so with those over-the-horizon radars will give me the ability to see much further out. And that's decision space that gives me options that I talked about earlier to either posture forces or provide the Secretary of Defense or the President with the opportunity to make a phone call. Uh, those are crucial to us. Now, over-the-horizon radar, radar is not the end-all, be-all solution. We still need to modernize uh, the, the legacy uh, North warning system and internally here around our country, the radars that we have. I, I've asked for, in my unfunded priority list, uh, some mobile uh, they're three-dimensional radars that will give us a significant capability. But in the long run, uh, we'll have to uh, do some more work there. What I would point out is I don't want uh, the folks to think about over-the-horizon radar as a single entity. I want folks to think about that as the far-reaching domain awareness. And what you do with that data is what's going to be crucial. And it needs to go into a global uh, integrated air missile defense, something that uh, we'll be able to track uh, and as well provide fire control solutions, whether those be kinetic solutions or non-kinetic solutions. And this is where uh, air and cruise missile defense of the homeland ties into over-the-horizon radar capabilities and also ties into the uh, future defense of Guam, et cetera. It's not regional. It needs to be a global perspective and sharing of data and information in enabling real-time collaboration to generate global effects before the threats are threats to the homeland. 
Uh, very good. Now, the Arctic's obviously a very unique operating environment, uh, given its uh, climate, massive size, and lack of uh, infrastructure or population centers. Um, so how do these factors shape how NORAD Northcom needs to look at developing an effective, sustainable solution? I, I'm guessing part of that's why space-based and UAV solutions are really attractive. Yeah, so I, I couldn't agree more. I, we've got to get to space uh, faster, space faster for threat warning, for attack assessment capabilities. Certainly we're there today, but we're challenged with hypersonics. And so look forward to Space Force fielding their proliferated low Earth orbit capabilities. Um, I, I think we need to get with those unmanned platforms that uh, allow us to operate uh longer loiter in a very, very harsh environment with the undersea capabilities. But the fact is, uh, humans have to be able to operate in that environment, uh, operate systems uh, as well. And so I look forward to uh, the services as they uh, move forward with their strategies, uh, buying down risk through research and development, research and development for capabilities to operate there that uh, will operate in a harsh, cold environment. Just as important to that is the uh, human element and buying down risk and, and thinking about uh, how we're going to operate in that environment. I think there's much work to, to uh, be accomplished there. Now, the Ted Stevens Center stood up recently. Uh, last August, I opened it up, and the Ted Stevens Center is under the Department of Defense, uh, but under me as a combatant commander. And they're doing incredible work on uh, education about this environment. They're doing incredible work with the industry, uh, academia, uh, to educate and uh, hopefully buy down that risk to operate in the environment that you're talking about. I think the commercial entities that Caitlin uh, talked about, uh, you know, there's been significant investment by commercial entities of satellite capabilities uh, to operate there. Uh, that's uh, funding that the, the department saved because we're not launching those satellite capabilities, but uh, we can have access to those and develop our own uh, encryption and capabilities to not only communicate, but have data and information sharing. So unmanned platforms then become more likely to be able to operate and pass data and information that, in that environment. Oh, thank you for that. Now, Caitlin, in your report, you identified the importance of addressing missile threats left of launch. Uh, could you walk us through that logic a little bit in more detail? Sure. Thanks, Gerald. Um, so, and we kind of think about the legacy approach to, to missile defense or kind of dealing with these air and, and missile threats to the homeland. Uh, we've thought about it in terms of sensors, battle managers, and shooters. Um, I sense an incoming threat. Um, I use air battle management to, to command and control of the airspace. And then I use a shooter to try to take down that threat. But when you start to talk about cruise missile salvos, how big are they? How many different targets are they going to hit? How many fighters do I even have available to scramble to, to, to intercept those cruise missiles or those aircraft that are launching those cruise missiles? Um, it becomes a really hard problem and sort of an almost impractical problem to deal with. It's overwhelming. And so then you have this choice of, do I just rely on deterrence? Do I just assume an adversary would not dare attack the US homeland for fear of retaliation? Or am I actually worried they might? And the homeland has been attacked before and we have responded. If you think about Pearl Harbor and 9-11, but as General Van Herc said, that's incredibly destabilizing. That's not the situation we want to have. And so this legacy approach to missile defense is not really working. And so the idea of missile defeat, and it's still, I think, an idea, General Van Herc may have more to say about this, is an idea that's sort of evolving in the DOD. There's no formal definition in the DOD dictionary. 
But missile defeat is this idea of, I want to get left of launch. I don't want to just wait until an attack is imminent. I want to, I want to actually understand what's going on uh, uh, in, in the airspace. And I want to let my leaders know, my political leadership know about it so that they can take steps to dissuade the adversary from launching those attacks in the first place. The adversary might be tempted to do this because they're trying to keep the U.S. out of a conflict, for example. So U.S. leaders need to know about this so that they can take action to, to gain the upper hand in this, this political bargaining. That's very good. And you anticipated my question uh, in uh, defining uh, the difference between missile defeat and missile defense. So let me ask John Van Herc how NORTHCOM and NORAD are working to operationalize this notion of missile defeat and uh, get as far left of launch as possible. Thanks. First, I think Caitlin did a great job, and I agree uh, with uh, everything that she said. What we've been doing uh, since I got here. So I took command in August, and in September, uh, we held globally uh, integrated exercise or global uh, information dominance experiment uh, one, and really opened my eyes to opportunities. And that one was focused a lot on sensor to shooter. And I saw the opportunities uh, to focus on sensor to decision maker to get further left, like Caitlin's talking about. And so I focused my team on the next three guide series that we did, our global information dominance experiments, to do exactly that and to bring in my fellow combatant commanders and even allies and partners to use the domain awareness that's available to us to share more domain awareness uh, and process it faster with uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, I'd point out uh, humans are always the decision maker. So don't, uh, when I talk about an unmanned and autonomous platforms and AI, uh, we're always focused on keeping a human in the loop. What I'm focusing on is uh, processing that data much quicker to get further left. Uh, and we've de demonstrated that by using not only military domain awareness, but commercially available domain awareness. Uh, think about um, uh, publicly available information that's out there. Uh, to be able to analyze, process, disseminate that much faster, JADC2, if you want to call it that, and create decision space. And uh, I would give you one example where we did that was um, in uh, 21, when uh, Russia uh, moved down towards the Donbass, ahead of actually uh, moving down, uh, you know, in 22, uh, we analyzed the data, the real data that was available, and we were able to gain three days of decision space. And that gives you defeat or uh, yeah uh, options sooner. And so how do you do this with missiles? And then what uh, Caitlin's really talking about is uh, missile uh, defeat here. Uh, you, you do it with onboard AI and ML on satellites where it processes and disseminates it uh, immediately to give you decision space. That's one way to do it. Think about supply chain uh, options and interdiction uh, to gain access, to be able to uh, deny and, and defeat uh, much sooner. Um, from me, it's about global collaboration, generating that effect forward with uh, domain awareness, potentially from allies and partners sharing domain awareness and generating a deterrence uh, or a defeat option if we need to. But to me, ultimately, this comes about data and information, General Deptula, and using that data and information in a timely manner to disseminate it. That's great. It's a wonderful segue into, into my next question before we move over to the to the audience. But um, you've talked about the need to avoid strategic surprise via improved domain awareness. And Caitlin, 
Your paper identifies several areas to improve domain awareness, including new sensors and better systems to process sensor data. Um, do you currently see the domain awareness challenge as primarily a data collection problem, a data processing problem, um, or both or more? Um, first you, General Van Hurt. Yeah, thanks, General Deptula. Actually, I see it as more. It is certainly uh, a data collection problem. Uh, you know, when you have low uh, radar cross-section capabilities, you can't see. Uh, we need capabilities such as over-the-horizon over radars to give us that domain awareness. But it's also a data a processing problem to process it in a timely manner. Uh, why I say it's more, it's a cultural problem and a policy problem as well to be able to be comfortable with sharing data and information, data that currently is uh, stovepipe sometimes uh, from policy or uh, legal considerations uh, within either the Intel community, or we can't share uh, with allies and partners or, or, or receive because they haven't made their systems uh, resilient enough and secure enough that we trust those things. So we have to work much more beyond just the data acquiring processing. I think it's a bigger uh, overall challenge for us, uh, but we have to get after it. It's that cultural difference that uh, I alluded to. Caitlin? Yes, yeah, sir. I'm uh, General Van Hurt covered this beautifully. I, I mean, I agree that there's clearly like an information sharing problem, and there's eight. Ar I think there's eight Arctic nations in the Arctic Council. I mean, there's a lot of countries up there with stakes, and so getting them all to work together and share information, obviously a challenge. Getting military and civilian leadership to wrap their minds around what is artificial intelligence again? Like, how does this abstract thing help me? That's a huge cultural challenge. Um, so, you know, he addressed all that very thoroughly. The only thing I would add that I think is kind of like exciting, well, a gap, but also something that could be exciting if it works is, you know, my sense is there is these serious like domain awareness challenges in the Arctic. Um, and I think it's kind of exciting some of the stuff Space Development Agency is doing. Like, I wonder how much they'll be able to help get after some of the cruise missile tracking threats the same way, you know, we've been able to do using overhead to go after ballistic missiles. So I think that's an exciting area that um, to watch and then also to watch that commercial satellite space because um, just the lack of literal lack of sensors up there seems to me to be a huge, huge challenge. Okay, well, thank you both, Joan Van Herk and uh, Caitlin for that discussion. What we're gonna do now is open the session to questions from the audience. Um, for our audience, you know the drill by now. I'll call on you, uh, then please unmute your mic, state your name and affiliation before asking your question. And remember, um, you can also submit questions using the Q&A function. So with that, let's go um, right to those who have their hands up. Let's go to Patrick Tucker first, Pat. Hey, uh, yeah, thanks everybody for doing this. Uh, General Van I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the Pathfinder program uh, and specifically um, what role might uh, that kind of fledgling machine learning program have played in uh, some of the events that transpired in February with the sudden detection of a lot of objects that were uh, later shot down by, by various jets and, and seemed to pose a problem, but maybe didn't pose the cruise missile problem that the Pathfinder program and the radars that it was merging data from was uh, uh, developed to solve. And I wonder if you could touch a little bit on the uh, 
the concerns about false positives from uh, merging a lot of uh, radar data together using machine learning. Uh, how are you grappling with that? Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Pat. Uh, appreciate that. So Pathfinder is a program that uh, was started, my predecessor actually started, I believe, where uh, we're actually taking the raw data uh, from our radars uh, and analyzing that with the machines that you, you alluded to. But we're also ingesting data from uh, FAA, uh, Capitol Police, Secret Service, other uh, domain awareness capabilities uh, and having uh, our machines be able to learn from that uh, data. And let me give you kind of the concrete example of what I'm talking about and how uh, Pathfinder has helped us. So in 2015, a gyrocopter flew from the north portion of the National Capital Region and landed on the Capitol lawn. And that gyrocopter was not detected, at least uh, by any entity solely, the FAA, NORAD, Capitol Police, Secret Service. But when we went back and we took the raw radar data from multiple sensors, no new sensors, just raw radar data, and applied the machine algorithms to it, magically there it was at treetop. And it's just using and processing the data differently than we have in the past. And so that I think is uh, crucial. I, I'm not aware of seeing uh, a bunch of false positives. The, the, the challenge you face is you, you can see so much data uh, and radar information that it overwhelms the human operating it. Thus, that's why we have filters placed so that you can limit the speed, uh, either top or bottom, or limit the altitude so that we don't over uh, uh, saturate the humans in the loop. But I'm not seeing false data. Actually, we're seeing the raw radar data. Okay, let's uh, go to Teresa Hitchens, Breaking Defense. Hi there. Um, nice to talk to you again. So I was I was wondering if General Van Hurt could talk a little bit more about if you could talk a little bit more about your commander's estimate on critical infrastructure and um, when you turn that that study in or review in and what kind of just elaborate a little bit on what that means, what you were looking at and um, and what you hope might come of it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Teresa. So um, one of the things I advocated for when I got here in my strategy was a policy on what I must defend. Uh, it's really hard to come up with an operational plan or advocate for resources if you don't fully understand what you're defending. Uh, I got that uh, at about my two-year point in command and uh, asked them to task me to do a commander's estimate, what it would take to defend that uh, defense critical infrastructure. I won't go into details on how many sites there are, uh, et cetera. But what I would tell you we did as part of a commander's estimate is look at every site that we're tasked in policy to defend. Some of them are tasked uh, to defend 24 hours a day. Some of them are only tasked to defend uh, during a crisis or conflict. And we broke that down is what does it take to defend? And you think, first of all, from the air domain, but we looked at it from cyber perspective, from the air domain from potential vulnerabilities to uh, uh, precision navigation timing capabilities, space, everything that go, would go with it. And we provided options to the department and recommendations for 
how you would defend that uh, in the current environment, as well as a future FIDEP of what uh, additional capabilities the department could uh, go down uh, to buy that would uh, allow us to defend that. And not all of it has to be defended. I think that's crucial to point out. It may just be through resilience, such as cyber monitoring or actually hardening of the facility uh, from a physical threat uh, that uh, allows us to generate the effect the policy uh, drives on us. As far as timing, I'm waiting for the policy to come back from the department that either says, yes, we agree, or that turns into a budget that uh, uh, tells me to go defend this and gives me the capabilities to do that. Uh, I don't know the timing of that. I'm certainly uh, hopeful that we'll get that before my time ends here and we can move out. Okay, let's turn the mic over to Kimberly Underwood. Kimberly. Thank you, General Deptula and Miss Lee and General Van Herc. Uh, General Van Herc, you mentioned some uh, policy changes that might be necessary, uh, especially uh, with unmanned um, aerial vehicles flying over the Arctic. Can you kind of elaborate more? And then Miss Lee, if you have anything to add about kind of other policy changes that are needed um, in the region. Thank you. Yeah, so I would tell you that uh, flying uh, unmanned platforms, let alone autonomous platforms, will require coordination across our interagency. Multiple stakeholders here from obviously transportation and the FAA uh, to commerce and others uh, to allow uh, those kinds of opportunities. I think the uh, the threat environment uh, is is going that way, and it's going to force the discussion. Uh, it'll also re require the use of the electromagnetic spectrum and deconfliction, those kinds of things. Those are uh, interagency discussions that we have to have uh, that, that allow us to operate on various spectrums, uh, especially across the globe as well. But th those are a couple of the policy things that I see going forward. And of course, the sharing of, uh, of the information uh, from the various uh, resources that uh, are out there, whether they be Intel community uh, resources, ally and partners, uh, vice versa, back and forth. Yeah, and I, and I would just pile on on the UAV piece to say, um, moving down from the policy level to just a more tactical level, um, what's kind of interesting and intriguing about UAVs in the, in the Arctic in particular is that they have such persistence. You can just keep them up there for long periods of time. Um, I think some steps have been made with current generation UAVs to, to make them more sort of Arctic capable, worrying about that de-icing capability and things like that. The thing about a UAV is it's up in the air a long time, and then you can throw all kinds of payloads on it. It kind of becomes a flying battle app. You can put SIGINT pods on it if you want to detect certain force movements. You can put, you know, comms links on it if you want it to become a relay. Um, and so, and even maritime surveillance or sono buoys. Um, so it can maybe help out with that undersea surveillance. So there's a lot of options with them to kind of just throw different <laughs> pods and sensors on them. We did this a lot in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so there could be some real opportunities there. Um, and then looking to next gen as you introduce more autonomy, I think that's when it gets really interesting because then you can actually start to reduce the manpower requirement associated with them. Very good. Let's shift to a couple of our uh, chat questions. Um, here's a question, uh, General Van Herc from uh, William Power. Can you speak to your thoughts about the strategic value of Greenland and the potential to develop supporting infrastructure, advanced sensing, and defensive systems with our Danish allies? Yeah, so Greenland is uh, 
a crucial location for layered defense for me, for domain awareness capabilities, especially for threat warning attack assessment. I have unfunded priorities uh, within uh, the department right now for infrastructure at uh, Batuffic, which is formerly Thule, uh, which are crucial for me in a layered defense. Um, as I look to uh, our Danish uh, allies and, and our Arctic uh, allies and partners, uh, I, I see tremendous growth opportunity uh, in Greenland and other places uh, for campaigning, uh, demonstrating capability, readiness, and domain awareness capabilities. So I think Greenland plays a, a crucial role there. The challenge for me within uh, the department is uh, it's in the UCOM AOR. It's a Space Force base uh, in uh, getting advocacy uh, out of a fellow uh, combatant commander for my priorities uh, is uh, something that we have to sort through in the processes we have in the department. Uh, so we continue to work that. I think it's crucial to accomplishing our national defense strategy uh, through a globally integrated layer defense of the homeland. It gets us forward uh, to generate those effects. Um, those are some great points that uh, could warrant a whole separate hour discussion all on its own. Uh, but the, be that as it may, here's a related question for you. Um, in your role as a commander of NORAD, you obviously work very closely with Canada, which it should be noted is making substantial investments itself in improving the North Warning System. Are there also opportunities to work with other allied Arctic nations to collectively improve NATO's broader operating picture in the Arctic? Yeah, great uh, question, comment. Uh, absolutely. So uh, I had uh, the commander of the Norwegian Joint Force here this week talking about exactly that, uh, expanding the uh, the collaboration, expanding the campaigning together, uh, expanding domain awareness and information sharing. So there are tremendous opportunities. Our strategic advantage we have over Russia and the PRC is our network of allies and partners, and especially in the Arctic uh, th that is crucial for us, and there's much opportunity there. Okay, well, um, one more. I think we have time to squeeze in one more uh, here from uh, the chat room from Bobby Skidmore. Considering the divestiture of multiple airborne ISR platforms in the near future, what role do you anticipate space-based ISR and or non-geosynchronous orbit capabilities playing into the Arctic problem set? Well, I, I see, as I mentioned earlier, the future is going to space quicker. We, we likely won't completely get away from airborne ISR. Uh, the divestiture and the transition uh, from platforms uh, is gonna force us to rely more on space-based capability and unmanned capabilities in the future. But the, the future I see is that persistent uh, stare, including in the Arctic, uh, that space-based capabilities uh, will give us. And I think uh, that's the future way we're going to go. Well, very good. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this uh, rollout. And General Van Herc, uh, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to be here today. And to Dr. Lee, thanks very much for an absolutely outstanding paper. Um, which is now available on our website at mitchellaerospacepower.org. So please go check it out. And uh, to our audience from all of us here at Mitchell Institute, have a great air and space power kind of day. Take care.